Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I had uh, I really enjoyed being here again last Sunday, and I'm very glad to be here again. Thank you for all your kindness to me and hospitality. If you don't know who I am, I'm, I'm obviously not particularly relevant to your life here, except that we have a friendship with Darren and Alex in particular. We have a, every year and a half, we get together as a group of leaders, um, sort of network around uh, the world, really, based on relationship. And um, ultimately, that's the only thing that matters, I think, in helping leaders sustain what they do. And if you're ever in London and you want to, to come and check us out, you're very welcome. We're called St. Mary's, and we'd love to see you. Um, so I, I, I fear that this might be quite difficult to hear this morning, um, but still, uh, I, I'm praying that this will be of help to people. I want to speak about God as Father, and actually, although I've, uh, in the course of trying to help people, often thought about, uh, come across the issues that people have relating to God as Father, I've never actually 
preached a sermon on the subject, so I was I was glad to be able to get my thoughts together, and this is them as together as they'll ever be. So discovering that God was uh, like a father was mainly good news for me. Um, <clears throat> as far as I was concerned, that meant that he would love, forgive, and value me as my father had. Um, I was, however, far less comfortable with the idea of God exercising a sort of fatherly authority over me, and that wasn't the only consequence of having a father who was often withdrawn because he was filled with anxiety, questions about his sexual identity and self-worth. In fact, I felt from the age of 15 as though I really became a father to my father, and I actually went on to despise older men who uh, looked to me for affirmation. I thought, this is completely the wrong way around. You know, I should be, you should be helping me. And the word that came into my mind was always despicable. This is despicable. And it took me a long time to realize that, that was actually connected to my experience of, you know, inappropriately trying to father my own father. Not that I did a very good job, I just want to say. Um, and I, I was, and I have to say still am, allergic to strongly authoritarian male leaders. And I also had no time for younger guys who wanted me to mentor them. If people wanted me to spend time with them, I used to think they were weak and needy. And needless to say, I no longer think that. And as I've become a father, obviously, I kind of grew out of that stupidity. But again, these, I trace these things back to my experience with my father. I do want to say one very charming thing about him. He was a kind of a pathological liar, um, which wasn't that charming, but in a really good way. So, you know, I played tennis, and so he would tell people, oh, you know, John played at Wimbledon. So I was forever meeting people. He said, I hear you played at Wimbledon. I'd be going, have you even met my father? It was, <laughs> that happened a lot, but it was always in a really positive way. Anyway, I have, I've always found it easy to draw near to God as Father for myself, but I realize that many other people have not and do not. They have had distant, abusive, controlling, angry, emotionally or ab actually absent fathers. When, when this happens to me, it isn't, <clears throat> it, this is my usual response to the presence of the Holy Spirit, I have to say. I wish it was more exciting, but it's mainly sort of uncontrollable crying. So I'm aware of <clears throat> the desire of the Spirit to bring healing to people. So obviously this kind of experience of, <clears throat> of a father shapes people's life experience affects their ability to come close to God. We'll be okay in a sec. <clears throat> One person wrote, I was 25 years old before I could say the word father while praying. The word was foreign to me. It didn't roll off my tongue the way it did for many of my Christian friends. It felt like a word from a foreign language. In one regard, it meant nothing, it was gibberish, but in another, it meant a world of things. It meant broken, scary, and hurtful things. How was I supposed to use a word that brought to mind everything a parent shouldn't be when I was in conversation with God? How was I supposed to call God by a name I hadn't used for most of my life, a name that didn't mean to me what I knew Scripture insisted God is? For me, to call God a father was like calling an apple an orange. They didn't mix. So... What, what can we do if we identify with a measure of that? 
I'd like us to start with this proposition of Jesus, that God is spirit and those who worship him must do so in spirit and truth. That's John 4, 24, which I think should come up behind me. There it is. Just leave that up for a bit. God is spirit and those who worship him must do so in spirit and truth. Now what that means is that the true nature of God is made known to us by revelation, by the spirit. So if we find the concept of God as Father difficult, remember that the Holy Spirit's role is to reveal what God is really like. So we're not left on our own with this problem. And he is the spirit of adoption. That's one of his names. So he's given to help us understand and experience God as he is. And also Jesus says we're called to worship in truth. And therefore it is right for us to relate to God as he truly is and not as we might fear that he is. Because I've noticed that people often have a very poor image of God, but they find it difficult to let go of that image. I'm saying to you, it's right to do so. It's right to fire unhealthy images of God because we're meant to worship in truth. Moving on, the fatherhood of God is simply unique. And while certain inevitably limited analogies can be made with human fathers, we shouldn't fully identify the two. For example, as spirit, God transcends human distinctions between the sexes. He's neither man nor woman. He is God. He also transcends human fatherhood and motherhood, although he is the origin and the ultimate definition of both. So this means that no one is father as God is father. He's not, in fact, a good, good father, as the song goes. Great song. He's much better than anything that this analogy could ever suggest to our minds. And so to help us from now on, I'm going to refer to God as true God. True God. I'm going to try to identify what true fatherhood is with true God. So I'm going to ask a few questions, and some of them are painful. This is the first one. Did your father do such an ineffectual or damaging job that it might have been better if you hadn't had one at all? The true God is the kind of God who cares for those who are actually or effectively fatherless. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God, the true God, in his holy dwelling. The true God, the one who none of us has had, is the kind of God who wants to look after the most vulnerable. And his nature is such that he cannot bear it when we feel alone or when we actually are alone. The true God seeks out those who need to be cared for. That is his real nature. Do you struggle with feelings of worthlessness because of the failure of your father? Do you struggle with doubts about whether you are truly lovable? The true God will always identify you as his son or his daughter. There will never be a day when he won't do that. His identification of you comes from who he is, it comes from his nature, and he looks upon you and he sees his son or his daughter. David, who totally believes this in the Bible, cries out to the true God, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. David spends time worshipping God, he has faith in God, and he seeks his presence. 
Meeting the true God as he is strengthens David's conviction that he is like a firstborn son. And we should notice that God really likes this about David, that he's worked this out. When I was um, researching the Old Testament origins of the term kingdom of God, I discovered that the true God identifies his kingdom with David and all his descendants, even though they are often awful. The history of the kings of Israel is, is a litany of disaster, really. But God still identifies himself with them because he identified first with David. He bears with them because they're the sons of someone who truly believes he is God's son, David. Do you trace a struggle with intimacy back to your relationship with your father? The true God can handle our fears and hesitations about self-disclosure. He draws us closely and safely into his loving arms and into his unconditional love. He does not leave, neglect, or mistreat us. He can reparent, or better still, truly parent us when we are face to face with him, as we allow ourselves to be present to him. But there's the rub. For people who find God as Father difficult, what is particularly difficult is any sense of being able to be present to him. But it's only in his presence that these deep wounds are actually healed. Where he does more than parent, he truly parents us. And everybody, including people who've had good experiences of fathers, need to be truly parented. So you're not alone. He is the immovable rock, and he will always be there for us in a way that no other person can or will ever be. When you think of God, are you in all honesty more afraid of him than anything else? The true God is full of compassion for us, and compassion means being fully on our side, having a deep concern for us, having pity upon us, always believing the best about us. And compassion is incompatible with antagonistic towards, being angry with, judging and finding wanting, or being disappointed with. The psalmist writes, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, in Psalm 103.13. And fear here does not mean being afraid of in the English sense of the word. It means respect or honor. So we are meant to respect and honor God above all others, but not to be afraid in his presence. But again, people who've had fear-inducing experiences of fathers often feel like they need to be frightened of God. It's not true. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. Just as all fathers fail, so do all people. And God knows this about us. Again, we, ca- we cannot say things that justify the sorts of damaging behaviors that hurt other people, ourselves, and our relationship with God. But at the same time, the only way in which we're changed into the image of God and brought out of those patterns of behavior is by dwelling with him, drawing close to him. And this is why grace is such a crucial concept. Do you know, Christianity is an absolute nightmare for perfectionists. It really is. It's a nightmare. It's anti-perfectionist. So for all those of us who want to earn it, work for it, try hard for it, problem is God judges in a totally different way. His judgment proceeds from his own heart. And therefore, from his heart comes grace. You know that verse, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far is God above us, his ways above our ways. 
people think of that as being, yeah, that's right, I'm a worm and God is almighty God. But, you know, in the context, the sense in which God is so far above us is that he has mercy. Unlike a man, the Bible says, God will have mercy. So God is full of grace at all times. So all of us fail, but he has done everything necessary to deal with this problem at the cross. And, you know, one of the most depressing things about Christians, there are a few depressing things about Christians, um, but one of, one of the most depressing things is their failure to take the good stuff. You know, basically, it's a lovely day. This is California. There are wonderful things to do. Why be in a smelly auditorium like this if you weren't going to take the good stuff? And the good stuff surely includes forgiveness. It surely includes the grace of God. It surely includes receiving the message that we are loved. Surely it's that. What depresses me is people coming in and going out. And yet if you look at them, they say and do the same. They look like everyone else, sound like everyone else, but actually in their heart is a thousand miles away. I find that very painful. But I know that it always happens for a reason. So the truth is that God's judgment has fallen at the cross. And anybody who looks to him and what he's done there is forgiven. We are people who have been delivered from the power of sin. We are in the process of being delivered from the presence of sin in our life. But one day that will be completed. But So we're always in this process. But it starts with the realization, the belief in our heart that we are loved and that we are accepted and that God is going to put up with a certain amount of crap because he hasn't got any choice. He knew what he did when he chose you. He, he knew the depths of your absolutely disastrous nature. And, and he, is, he is in the process of transforming you from the inside out. Somehow it doesn't put him off. I mean, how? I do not know. But it does not put him off. So anyway, why be afraid of somebody who shows such love? This is why John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, the love of the true God, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So staying with this theme of compassion, let's consider the extremely well-known parable of the prodigal son. So I just want to make one point from this. Um, Have we got that somewhere? Luke 15. Uh, There it is. Okay, we'll come into that a bit later then. So... This reveals again how the true God responds to us in our brokenness. It's the story of two sons, as you know, one of whom asked to receive his inheritance in advance, effectively treating his father as though he's already dead. The father gives it to him, he heads off to live the high life, ultimately blows the lot and ends up feeding pigs to stay alive. So from a Jewish perspective, he could not have sunk any lower. So this is about a boy who's totally and undeniably failed. His father, his family, himself... Now, defective experiences of fathers can leave us feeling empty and worthless, even though we haven't actually done anything. Some people have a pervasive sense that they are unworthy, and that usually comes back down to an inadequate experience of love being mediated to them or given to them. Often, though, because we already feel negative things about ourselves, we go on to actually do things that compound the sense of failure. So now we've got a double wound. Jesus says that the young man came to his senses in verse 17. So he realizes that despite everything, his father will allow, won't allow him to starve, but will take him in as a servant, which probably means, we should note, that he hasn't really 
uh, come to his senses, he actually underestimates the enormity of his father's love. But as soon as the father sees the boy, he rushes towards him, takes him in his arms, fully restores his sonship. <clears throat> I want to deduce a few things from this. Could you put it back again? It's gone as if by magic. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, says the boy. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So I just want to deduce from that passage a few things. First of all, whatever our fathers may have communicated or failed to communicate to us, the true God never loses hope concerning us. There's the most beautiful thing I think about this story. The most notable thing about the son is the extent of his genuine catastrophic failure. He treats his father as though he's dead. He doesn't care at all about his father's family. He jeopardizes everybody's financial security. He's totally self-related. He throws off any moral constraint. He has no long-term plan for the future, for when the money runs out or disaster strikes, and he ends up pigging it up with some actual pigs. So to say that he does not fulfill his father's hopes is an understatement. And yet the true God continues to have hope in him, as he does in us. This is the opposite of having a punishing, distant, or disinterested attitude towards us. The true God has always had a bright vision for the way our life could be. And nothing that other people, including our fathers, or that we do, causes that vision to diminish. God's vision for you remains as bright now as it ever was. Some of us may have longed for our father to actually pay attention to us and others may have gone to great lengths to make sure that they couldn't actually know what we were doing. Well, the true God is always looking out for us, but not as many fear, just waiting for you to have fun so he can strike you down with a thunderbolt as if, he- as if God is in heaven saying, that's too much fun, fry him. <laughs> God is looking out for us, not to strike us down, in the, in the face of the son's active rejection of him, the father continues to wait and watch for the return of the son. When he sees him, still a long way off, still a long way off, that implies that he's watching every day for the return of the son. He doesn't stand aloof. He doesn't wait for the stinker to come crawling home humiliated. As no older person would do in this culture, the father lifts up his robes and he runs towards the son. The true God is therefore always looking for us, reaching out to us. Some may have had punishing fathers or ones who withheld forgiveness. And you could, as I mentioned, question the sincerity of the son's repentance here. It's really born out of self-preservation, though he's ready with the right words. Verse 19. Perhaps the most important thing about his return is the twin recognition that he can't survive without his father and that his issues are not his father's fault. I'm just going to come back to that in a moment. I, I, somebody, somebody with much more theological gravitas than myself told me an amazing thing about the reinstatement of Peter. So, you know, Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? He asks him three times and Peter, you know, keeps saying, I do. Actually, he doesn't. So basically, in the Greek, what Jesus says is, do you agape me? Do you love me in the highest spiritual sense? And what Peter says is, I'm your mate. I filiate you. 
In other words, I'm your friend. So Jesus asked him again, do you actually love me in the spiritual sense that I'm asking you about? And he goes, no, but I am your friend. So what Jesus does is he comes down to his level. So the third time he says, will you be my friend? And Peter says, I'll be your friend. Such humility. Don't you think? So, you know, God takes what he can get. Like I said, the son has realized, if I don't go home, I will die. My father won't let me die. So he takes that. Isn't that incredible? God is too humble for his own good. As I say, perhaps the most important thing is he realizes he cannot survive without his father. And that not all the issues are his father's fault. How often do people say, if there is a God, why did this happen to me? So many times. God gets blamed for everything, including the things that we don't want to accept responsibility for. When the boy returns, he actually acknowledges um, what has happened. I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's true. And repentance, the religious word, is turning away from our own way, but really it's recognizing that the true God's way is good, safe, and secure for us. The acknowledgement of this allows God, the true God, to begin to release all the hopeful possibilities of his vision for our lives again. That's all it does. So when we are perpetually doing something which we know we shouldn't really be doing, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that his hope for us has somehow been diminished or tarnished. Those things remain because fortunately they come from God and not from us. However, we are separated from deep connection with him and that's the problem. Then it's difficult for us to actually co- collaborate with him, to operate with him and to go on to fulfill what he wants us to do in our lives. We can't do this when we're going it alone. So what the son really does is cease to be alone and come back into relationship. Again, contrary to those fathers who fail to affirm their connection with their children, the true God fully reinstates us as his own. The father crams the family ring on his finger, and this symbolizes an immediate restoration of partnership, of being in business with dad. He immediately sends for the best robe, and you know is, is getting it on him before he's had a bath. The robe over his shoulders goes all the way down to the boy's ankles. It's a robe of dignity. And this is how the true God covers the naked shame of our past. He desires to restore us to the full stature and beauty of his vision for our lives. So look, how do we find healing for these wounds? If I have managed to open them again or touch upon them, how how do we find healing for these wounds? including those afflicted by our fathers. Well, well, really, as Christians, we are reorientating our worldview, just to start with. We're replacing our parents, our upbringing, our environment, our experience with the teaching of the Bible as the definition of what is normal and our experience of the true God as the new standard of rationality. So we are whole people, we are body, mind and spirit and the healing that comes to us comes through our mind, it comes into our soul, it comes through our experience of God. And so what I find is typically when people start to dare to believe something they've never believed before, God meets them by his spirit, something happens, there's an answer to prayer, there's a new experience of forgiveness or restoration or something and it gives them courage to go on and it starts the process of correction. 
because all of us bring to the party certain distortions. And so basically we're looking to have a reorientation. When I first became a Christian, I used to write down verses that were interesting to me uh, about who I was, about my identity, my self-worth, and what God wanted to do through me. And I meditated on them, which is to say that they're in a little book. I've still got the book. And I just read verses to myself. And every time I prayed, I just read a couple of them and try and memorize them and try to take the word of God as medicine. I often find myself saying this, but let's just play an imaginary game. Let's pretend there is a God, okay? And let's pretend that the Bible was inspired by him. Now, if it was inspired by him and there was a God, how much do you think you would actually read it? And not just read it, but actually tattoo its contents into your inner being. Would you not, you know, salitate bits to your children's heads so you could see it every time, you know, you saw your children? I think you would. I think if we actually really believe what we say we believe, then basically we'd be a lot happier. And we'd actually find our minds being transformed by the power of God, because the, the, God's word has power, doesn't it? So as we dwell in it, our, we are changed. Ha, have you not, like me, experienced times when you just wish, oh my goodness me, I've got to go to church, I can't believe it. Now this is difficult for me because I actually lead one. But basically, you know, I don't want to be there. I'm, I'm really grateful that I have to go twice a day because I'm paid. So basically, it would just be awkward. So basically, however, I often feel like a, a piece of death when I first arrive. But everything is changed in the course of the process of worship. It's changed. And I become a different person. And that's because I'm interacting even through the words of the songs, what the Bible says, and I'm beginning to, my spirit's coming alive, and I become, I'm just a different guy. And I imagine that happens to you as well. We have to allow that to happen. So it's a reorientation process, beginning with, with this, that God is not our father. He is the true God, more of a father than ours could ever be. Reorientating ourselves around this truth is a process. And when we're praying for people at the end of church, and I I was very moved by how many people came forward for prayer. As I often say, I get paid the same amount of money, however many people come forward for prayer. It's not about me. But I like the fact that in this church people come forward for prayer because it suggests that they understand where transforming power is. See, the trouble with a lot of churches, you can get some truly brilliant sermons, much better than this one, and you think, that is amazing. But, there's, but what's being short-circuited is the power of God to actually do something about it right now. Whereas Jesus both did teaching and ministry, didn't he? So in this church, we do teaching and ministry, which means if you feel God is speaking to you, if you've got half a brain, you come forward. I'm not joking. Seriously, it's as simple as that. That's what I say to my church. What I like about my church in particular is they all come forward. Now, that's a problem because we often don't have a ministry team as such because the ministry team has come forward because I've, te- I've taught them that. <laughs> so people, when people are being prayed for, they are, they are often courageously in the process of identifying unbiblical views of God facing up to what's happened in the past before embracing a new way of seeing what's happened and themselves in the light of what Jesus has done for them. That's what's going on when we pray for people. And often it's nameless. That's why you absolutely should know how to pray for people. Seriously, this, I, I can't tell the stories because they're too personal. But this week I've seen God's power just in a few conversations, a few situations where I have been able to follow a little bit of what the Spirit was saying. And basically those people have then very courageously allowed God in and there has been complete transformation. Now, you want to be able to do that stuff. It's, it's huge fun. It's huge fun. It's the fun of being a Christian, like receiving grace and forgiveness. You also want to be able to heal people. That is fun. <clears throat> so this process um, may require the removal of specific roadblocks, the healing of particular memories, the release or receiving of forgiveness, 
the release of pain or anger, and sometimes acts of reconciliation outside this particular context. Everybody's somewhere on the journey. No one's arrived. Sometimes the level of damage is so acute in our lives that people really need the help of professionals. And I just want to say, there seems to be some kind of shame for Christians in seeking psychological help if their hurt is so great. There should not be. There should not be. Nobody would look down on you as a Christian if you said, I've broken my leg, but I'm trying to tough it out with God. You know, it's broken, it's at an angle, but I've got God, so it'll be okay. It's ridiculous. We can experience such damage in our inner being that we need help. And, and when people receive help and they kind of stabilize and, and they've got that support, they can also receive other acts of healing from God directly by his spirit. So, you know, if it's overwhelming, you should have no concerns about finding professional help for yourselves. None. It's not unchristian to do that. We also need to discover healing, healthy relationships in the church. And again, one of the things I love about your church is it really does emphasize relationship. It does it properly. And it's always, I always find it moving to be here because there is real relationship. You can feel it. Now, if you don't feel particularly connected to this church, it's, it's a big church. So it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But there is a level of relationship you can enjoy, that you can do life with people. And we're supposed to be able to do that with our peers, but ideally as well in this situation with older mother and father type people. One of the things that God used to help me with my, help me resolve my issues was he brought a lot of guys into my life that wanted to invest in me as a young man. And I remember the time when that stopped. And I remember saying to God, what's happened? Where are they? And I felt God said, I just want you to do it now. So, so um, and actually, they've never been there ever since. Um, so that's been quite a thing. So, so you want to actively seek out people that you love who are older, who might just by relationship with you, be able to help you find things that have been missing. I think God does that, uses people in that way to bring some healing too. However, I stress the best thing we can do for ourselves is to meditate on the character of the true God revealed in the passages I've discussed and in many other places. Let's take great joy in tearing up grainy old instamatic photos of God that look remarkably like our own fathers. Let us instead, and this is so contemporary, Instagram into our own hearts the iPhone 7 quality pictures of the true God found in the Bible and gaze upon those with wonder, love and praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.